This episode is brought to you by Goalie. Did you know the University of Michigan did a study that found over 80% of apps for kids are designed to lure them into longer gameplay and more in-app purchases? Goalie decided it was time for this to end. Unlike the Kindle and iPad that have endless ads and potentially dangerous content, Goalie is a tablet with only apps that build independent kids. It has no web browser, no social media, and no ads, ever. It has award-winning learning apps like Khan Academy, Duolingo ABC, and Starfall, and the best part? It's completely parent-controlled. In my house, we use Goalie's kids' calendar to teach my son how to stay on task. He learns life skills like how to make a sandwich by watching one of the hundreds of video classes and can practice it by following along with one of the 50 pre-made routines. As a dad, there's no better feeling than knowing that my son is becoming more independent every day. For more information and to try Goalie risk-free for 30 days, visit getgoalie.com. That's G-E-T-G-O-A-L-L-Y.com and use the code THEAUTISMDAD to save 10%. Welcome to the Autism Dad Podcast. I'm Rob Gorski. As a single dad to three amazing autistic kids, I've been the go-to resource for parents across the globe navigating neurodivergence since 2010. Building on the success of my award-winning blog, The Autism Dad, this podcast provides parents raising autistic or neurodivergent kids with comfort, community, resources, and validation. You'll also hear inspiring stories from parents just like you, reminding you that you're not alone. So don't miss out. New episodes drop every Monday and Wednesday. Subscribe on your favorite podcast listening app and visit theautismdad.com for more information. On this week's episode of the Autism Dad podcast, I am going to be stepping way, way outside my comfort zone because you guys have been asking for a very, very long time to have a conversation all about how to navigate puberty with our neurodivergent kids. And I have put it off, to be completely honest with you, because it's incredibly uncomfortable. And I just did not think I was the right person to do it. However, you guys are very persistent. And I am really trying to challenge myself this year to step outside my comfort zone. And I also realize that we have to be able to talk about uncomfortable things. We can't learn, we can't grow, we can't ask questions if we are unable or unwilling to do that. So. With that in mind, friend of the pod, Dr. Whitney Caceres is back today, and not only is she an autism mom, but she is also a pediatrician, as well as a public health expert. She's got a ton of things behind her name. She's the perfect person to have this conversation with because she not only lives it in her professional life, but she's living it in her personal life. And uh, if we're going to have an uncomfortable conversation, let's just let's just do it, right? And and let's let's have a real, honest, transparent conversation about uncomfortable things. And we'll all learn something uh, and and be better for it in the end. And our kids will be better for it because we'll have some idea of what to do. So I really appreciate you guys taking the time to tune in. Thank you for being so persistent and asking for this. I hope you guys find this helpful and you enjoy the interview. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to, to come back uh, again because you've been on a few times and it's always a good time. I really appreciate uh, all, of, all of that. Um, could you take a second real quick and just kind of Remind people who you are and, and what you do. Yeah, absolutely. So I am a pediatrician by training, um, Stanford trained pediatrician. I have a master's in public health from Berkeley in maternal and child health, which means that I'm an expert in that kind of symbiotic relationship between the health and wellness of a child and the health and wellness of caregivers. And then for your audience, I also am the mom to an autistic kiddo. 
um, and another kiddo who has OCD, so very differently wired kids. Mm-hmm. And so I am uh, walking the walk as I talk the talk. Um, <laughs> and I've been in practice for <laughs> for uh, over 12 years or so, seeing patients all the time. So I know that sometimes this topic that we're going to get into can be kind of uncomfortable or feel a little icky for people. It's something I talk about all day, every day with my patients. And so let's get a little real and talk about those big questions that are on people's minds. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for doing this. Um, and we also just want to say that you do a lot of work uh, to support moms too with your modern mommy docs. I don't want to um, exclude that. I want people to, to know where they can find you. And we'll go through all that stuff at the end too. But but yeah, puberty is, I don't know why. I don't know if it's harder for dads to talk about than it is for moms. It Maybe it is. Moms are just I think it totally amazing. is. Uh, my husband, for sure, who's not a pediatrician, right? But like, if if our girls ask him a question, he gets real squeamish. Yeah. Uh, I have two right. girls. <laughs> but also what I see is that the partners at my office, the men, they'll send people in, our, in my direction on things like periods. I mean, like things that are not that nitty gritty in my right. mind, I end up being the one who takes those things on versus like if I'm asked to see a kid who has a circumcision issue, I'll see that kid, no problem, right? So absolutely, I think it's a difference in terms of just uh, what the conversation is between maybe moms and their kids um, as they've grown up. And so as a woman, um, something I feel very comfortable talking about, but also because philosophically, I really believe that removing shame and stigma and making it less mysterious when it comes to puberty and to sex and drugs and rock and roll and all those things for our kids, no matter if they're neurodivergent or not, really is the name of the game in terms of them continuing to come to you and to be honest as they grow up. Yeah, I, I well, I totally agree with that. And I have tried, well, it's been, it's been, it's been hard as a single dad to navigate this stuff. And I have, I have three boys and I feel like I made it through puberty relatively unscathed. And, and I know that that's not, that isn't common. I think a lot of people really struggle with that. So, you know, I'm going to count my blessings there, but it is, (laughs) it is tough to talk about, you know I mean? I, I talk about all kinds of like sensitive things, uh, on the podcast, whatever, but this is, this is just, I don't know why it is. It's like this, uh, emotional hurdle for parents to like, just say certain words and navigate some of this stuff with their kids. And I don't know if it's because like as we were younger, it just sort of was something that wasn't talked about and it was sort of taboo to talk about this stuff. And now it's just like, we should talk about it. Obviously it's a problem. Yeah. Obviously there's things we need to, to do and, and talking about it is how we address it and move forward. So I appreciate you uh, being willing to do this and see Absolutely. how I see how I do. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'll help you. I'll support you along I, the way. I appreciate, <laughs> I appreciate it. Cause I, I, yeah, I'm, I got this. We got this. Okay. So let's, let's just start off with, um, you know, puberty is difficult for anyone. Like I remember going through it. It sucked. It wasn't fun, whatever. But when you are, when you're raising a neurodivergent child, I think that there are added levels of complexity and difficulties that can arise. And I guess what I wanted to do was, was start this off with, with two things. Like, is there, what are some of the differences that you that you see in kids going through puberty, whether they are neurodivergent or neurotypical? Like, what are some of the complications or, or challenges that are unique? 
Yeah, absolutely. So what I see is a lot in my neurodivergent population, parents being scared to talk about puberty or anything related to sex or relationships with their kids because they don't want to open kind of a Pandora's box and maybe have those kids not be equipped to deal with the information that comes their way. Yeah. So for example, I had a kiddo who has downs and um, we ask in our office about sex for every single kid and about periods and whatever. And I asked her a couple of questions and I go like, oh, like, has anyone ever talked to you about sex? She goes, oh yeah. And I think I've done that. I'm like, oh, interesting. Um, and I brought them on back in and she's like, yeah, that's something we don't talk about at all. We tell her just no one's supposed to touch your body other than mom and dad. Nobody is supposed to look at your body at all. And I think that there are some cases when um, a kiddo was very cognitively challenged that that probably does make sense to make it pretty cut and dry. Yeah. Like just so that it's not confusing. But I think that for many of us who have kids who are very much on the spectrum, who take some things very literally, but other things we need to fill in the gray areas, it behooves us to have some of those more complicated conversations, even if they make us uncomfortable, or even if it does open a box, so then we have to go down a road that's a little more, more interesting. So for example, my own daughter in class, um, they were having a whole discussion about body changes. She's in the fifth grade. And this was uh, a year or two ago. And they go, you know, it's okay for anybody to love anybody, you know, boys can love boys and girls can love girls. And my daughter raises her hand and says, except for pedophiles, pedophile, <laughs> pedophilia is not okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know? obviously, yeah. And she's right. I mean, like, she's not wrong. And the teacher sent her out in the hallway because that was something that was not acceptable in the teacher's eyes. She didn't know how to handle that. And so I think a lot of the challenges arise, A, with that fear that we're going to open up Pandora's box, but also B, with our discomfort with the topic ourselves and with this feeling of, oh, no, we're going to have to have this big talk. I don't know if this happened with you, Rob, but for me, my mom was like at 16, like, OK, any questions? Like, it's time for the talk. Any questions? Like, I already had a lot of talks with my friends and boyfriends, so I'm good now. I don't need to have a talk. But my philosophy has always been with kids, neurodivergent or not, to start as young as you can with having conversations. Mm -hmm. Doesn't have to be big. I don't actually ever want parents to have like, quote unquote, the conversation. I want it to be that you're giving developmentally appropriate information as your kids get older and that that then opens the door to your kids asking questions and then you can answer those questions as concretely as possible. Mm -hmm. So when my kids were really little, we had a cool book called um, It's Perfectly Normal. There's another one um, that's in that same series for slightly younger kids that just talked about the biology of what happens in your body. It talks about eggs. It talks about sperm. It talks about periods. It talks about like pubic hair. So it's about all of those things, but in a very non-relationship way, very much in a like, isn't it rad how the body works in the same way that you would say like, isn't it rad how the heart works? Isn't it rad how the brain works, right? Like sort of normalizing in that exact it. same way. Yes. Yeah. Normalizing it and having it just be that laid up foundation. And then what would happen is over time, my kids naturally, my older one, you know, I think neurodivergent kids are sometimes some of the most curious kids out there. Um, McKenna, my oldest would come to me and say like, hey, how does this work? Hey, 
does every boy, um, does every boy have to have, uh, wet dreams in order to have gone through puberty? And I'm like, huh? Or like, does every single boy have wet dreams? I didn't know the answer to that. Like, are, is there a percentage of people that don't? Mm -hmm. And so I looked it up for her. I said, like, I don't know. Let's look it up. And so she and I looked it up. Now, I did not go on to have a full conversation with her about anything other than that question that she asked me. We just looked up the answer to that question. Then she asked me one or two other questions. I answered those. And then that was the end. So even though I might have had this fear, and even as a pediatrician, I might have been like, ooh, uh-oh, I'm going to now have to have this hour-long talk. It wasn't that. It was her literally asking scientific questions. So that's always my approach. That's always my recommendation is however old your kid is, try to lay a biological foundation for them first and then allow them to be the ones that ask the questions. And then we'll talk, we can talk about body safety in a second, but that is the other huge thing I think for neurodivergent kids that we have to be very, very concrete about. Yeah, I think, and I guess that's probably one of the big you know, as far as we talk about differences between neurotypical kids going through it and neurodivergent kids, that's one of the big concerns that a lot of parents have. And I think, yeah. and so like when you talked about, you know, that mom who was just saying that we don't talk about it, we just say flat no. I get mm -hmm. that because yeah. there, you know, there, there is room for interpretation sometimes and, yeah. and confusion that can allow people to exploit or take advantage of, of our kids. Yeah. And yeah. And I've, I've handled that differently with, with my kids who, who need to be addressed differently. Cause they're not all the same, right? All three of my kids, mm -hmm. I had to address things differently. And in some cases it's just like, no, this is just the way that it has to be because yeah. I don't, I don't feel like they, they understand the nuance and, yeah. and I would be very concerned and even working with their therapist, it was like, this, we, we need to do this. It's just a safety thing to make sure that nobody can yeah. take advantage of him and whatever. And, and so it's what we do, right? It's, it's not ideal, but in the absence of like a better option, I, I don't know, you know, I don't, I don't know what to do. Yeah, totally. No, I think that for kids who cognitively have deficits that are severe, where you feel like there's nothing that they can't be black or white about, then you have to do that. I think for the majority of neurodivergent kids who have ADHD, who have autism, who are more on that spectrum, and especially for kids like mine who would have been labeled Asperger's previously, mm -hmm. the big thing that I tell them from the very beginning, and actually this is true for all my patients, is I tell them concretely, these are the people who are allowed to look at your body and to touch your body. Yeah. You are allowed to have your mom help you, your dad can help you, and the doctor when your mom or your dad is there in the room with you saying that it's okay. And that's it, right? So making it so concrete because kids, it's scary to be like, oh, this person, they can't, this person, they can't, this person, they can't. It's yeah, much it's... easier to give your kids a short list. Yeah. And, and then it's, it's not open for interpretation. It's they're less likely to be able to be manipulated into something. Mm -hmm. And, and I, and I totally get it. I totally get it because that was always, we were always told, uh, my oldest and he's, he's, he's matured a lot. So he's doing a lot better now, but when he was younger, you know, we were told to be very careful because he's the perfect victim because something could yeah. happen to him and he would never tell anybody, you know, unless right. you asked a very specific question. Right. 
And, and there's a lot of parents that are in fear of that type of thing, you know? So I, 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 I get, I get that. It's a tough thing to navigate. Um, all right. So let's, let's do this to it first, and then we'll go into some questions. We know how like autism presents differently in boys versus, you know, girls. Mm-hmm. How does puberty get experienced between boys and girls? If that makes sense. Like what yeah. can parents expect for girls who are neurodivergent to experience and what can parents expect of their young boys? And like at what, what age, I guess. Yeah. Okay. So there's a couple things. So one growth starts pretty early. So it's normal for boys and girls to have growing pains. So these pains are in their legs. It can be in their arms. It's like bone pain as they're literally stretching out. It's kind of mm-hmm. cool. <laughs> if you're nerdy like me. Um, and that usually starts like around six years old. And that can be up until about like nine, 10 years old, where a lot of times they're really achy. And a lot of times that's going to be at night. Um, you can feel reassured about it if it kind of alternates in terms of like it's in one leg and then the other leg or both legs. If it's just one leg or one part of your leg or one part of your arm and it's during the daytime too, that's something to check with your doctor about. But if your kiddo is having growing pains, that's generally speaking, very, very normal. Then the other part that comes earlier than most people expect for boys and girls is this kind of emotional renaissance uh, is how I like to call it. So it's being very emotional, very touchy, like not sure why they're so mad, but they just are. And you'll find a lot of these kids that will just be like, like angry. And then they come back to the parent and are like, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to be like so mean, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, like I wasn't trying to be so mean. Expect that for sure. Even in nonverbal kids that that will happen where kids will be like aggressive or more more emotional seemingly for no reason. And in those circumstances, you have to go back to what you did when those kids were babies, which is go through your list of the basics. Is this kid hungry? Did they miss their medications? Are they tired? Did they have something happen at school? Are they in pain from something? If not, okay, it could be just a moment that you need to kind of get through. Um, And I think Rob, you and I both know I have used screens or, you know, outings or food sometimes in ways that I think other parents don't because we have to. Mm -hmm. And I'm not a fan of like, you know, feeding your feelings or just like letting kids zone out completely on screens. I'm an American Academy pediatric spokesperson. Don't do that. But I do think we have to give ourselves a break as parents of neurodivergent kids that if the alternative is you feeling terrible about yourself or feeling terrible about your kid or spiraling down or yelling at your kid, you got to take a break, you know? Yep. It's a, it's a nice distraction. You can use it as a tool for redirection, um, positive reinforcement. It can be a reward for things. I mean, there's all kinds of ways that you can positively implement some of, of those things. So like, I, I totally, totally agree with you and allow yourself that grace to be human. And, and need that always, you know, like what do you, maybe you need to go watch a show for a second. That's okay. You know? Um, okay. So those are like some of the early signs of puberty. Then girls tend to go through puberty a lot sooner than boys. So we'll see girls even as young as eight years old, it can be normal to have puberty start. Um, boys, usually it's a little later, like more like 10, 11, that they're going to start the signs of puberty. Girls, what happens is usually they have some breast tissue that develops, then they're going to have more hair in their pubic area, more breast tissue, more hair, then a big growth spurt, 
and then usually their period after that. And it's usually about a two and a half year time period between when they first start having those breast buds and when they have their actual period. Mm -hmm. Um, For neurodivergent kids, there can be pain when you have breast buds. So that can be uncomfortable for kids. So um, thinking about maybe like one of those little heating pads that goes into the microwave, like the um, Bucky's, my Bucky's that are oats that you can just put on your chest. That can be comforting. Ibuprofen or Tylenol distraction. Mm -hmm. That can be comforting. Um, When kids get all the way to that period time period, I always tell people, especially parents of neurodivergent kids, to think about once your child gets on their cycle and they're having their periods and you can predict using a little bit of ibuprofen the day before or the day that they start their period, because that actually is going to reduce um, how much blood flows and that's going to reduce cramping, which is going to make it so that kid is more comfortable. Um, the other thing to think about when neurodivergent girls have their periods is they might not be using tampons in the same way that a kiddo who is neurotypical might. And so, um, there's some really cool innovations that have happened over the last 10 years, including, um, period panties and they have period underwear. And I was just at Target. They have ones in the kids section. So it's not like you have to go to the adult section and go buy something that's weird. They look just like their kid underwear. They have patterns on them, but they're hyper absorbent. And so it makes it so that then you can actually absorb the blood without kids having to put sticky pads or things that might be really uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. So that's a big thing. The other thing for neurodivergent kids, boys and girls, is stinky feet and stinky (laughs) armpits. So that is a universal. And sometimes for our kids who maybe are not as aware of how they're appearing out in the world. Yep. teaching them to use deodorant uh, earlier versus later, teaching them they need to wear socks with their shoes, Um, finding like the slipperiest socks is what I always recommend so that it doesn't feel like there's that irritation, that rubbing that happens in their shoes. Um, And then the other thing that's happened in my house is hair. You know, your hair gets a little more oily. It can become looking a little more stringy. The teeth, if maybe you hadn't been brushing the teeth as frequently because it's a big battle, this is an age where that starts to come into play for girls and boys. In terms of boys' development, it starts a little bit later, like I said, more like 10, 11 for boys. Um, And it tends to be that boys do more of the voice deepening, having more hair in their armpits and in their pubic area. And a lot of times for boys, this can be really devastating for them. That growth doesn't happen until way later, like even in high school. Um, you could always remind your kiddo if they are verbal that the kids who take the longest to, to grow in terms of height actually end up usually being the tallest kids. So if they are still shorter than their peers, that's okay. We actually want them to grow, 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 and then have a big longer growth spurt or later growth spurt in order to reach that height. So those are some of the big things that I see for, for families. A lot of it, I mean, of course, there's the body changes, but for me, it's about the emotional changes that parents see that are really, you have to brace yourself for and figure out what am I going to do? What tools am I going to use for myself? Okay. Well, well, thank you. And I can relate to a lot of what you were saying, you know, like the growth spurt. My youngest was, I mean, he was so tiny, so tiny until he Mm -hmm. hit like 10 or 11. And, and then he just shot up to the point where then he did have he did have some, cause he has Ehlers-Danlos as well. So that complicated everything, but like the bone <laughs> pain, all of that stuff, he went through all of that. His voice used to be like a mouse, like real squeaky. 
right now it's like super deep and he's talking like this <laughs> you know he's 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 coming into his own and and it didn't you know he was worried that it was never going to happen and you know it happened slow and steady guys right slow and steady yeah. um okay so here's we have we have a, we have a whole list of of questions and uh, I sort of anonymized them because I pulled them from people that posted social media and I had mm -hmm. chat GPT sort of make them generic kind of so that sure. you couldn't go back and match people up, whatever. So, um, okay. So the first question is just part of like that understanding and explaining puberty to your kids. Like how does puberty impact autism and, and vice versa? Is there distinctive challenges that parents can expect? Yeah. So, uh, my daughter's psychiatrist always told me like, let's, see what happens with puberty, yeah. you know, um, <laughs> right. That's it, what I was always told. It's like, thanks. Uh, I'm like, great. Thanks so much. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, I, I think basically when you have a kid who is autistic, of course they are by and large going to be more sensitive. Mm -hmm. They're going to be more rigid. They're going to take things more personally. Their friendships are going to have a harder time. A lot of times understanding what are those nuances, um, that happen. And so puberty does make or autism does, I think, make puberty more challenging. Um, and then because of that, puberty makes autism more challenging, right? I think it's like a chicken yeah. and egg. I think it's not like one or the other, it's mm -hmm. both. Um, the biggest thing that I found actually as the challenge as we're getting into those emotional changes for my daughter who's 10 is around the friendships because um, she'll have a little spat with her friends. I... I'm trying to advocate for her. I want to make sure that she doesn't lose friends because they're not treating her kindly mm -hmm. because she's neurodivergent. And at the same time, I don't want my kid to be like, quote unquote, that kid or me to be that mom mm -hmm. where I'm constantly stepping in for her, not allowing her to learn problem solving skills and labeling her as like the kid nobody wants to hang out with. So yeah. I think to me, that's actually one of the hardest things to navigate and what I've had to do is practice a ton of self-compassion and um, that mental pause as a mom before I react when my kid has a situation. Because, of course, when she comes home sobbing because someone called her a crybaby or yeah. in to a total wreck because nobody wanted to play with her that day, my initial reaction is going to like mama bear. I want to take care of her. And so I have to pause give myself some grace and some self-compassion that of course I'm going to feel that way. I've always been mama bearing her and then try to respond instead of react as much as possible in the situation, because that way I can choose. Is this a moment where I actually do need to step in with that friend? Or is this a moment where I have to let her tough it out? Even as heartbreaking as that's going to be. And, I, and, and it's, and it's tough because like, I know one of the challenges that I've faced over the years with, with my kids is just their, their kind of social awkwardness. Like my, my kids do really well. Uh, but reading people can be tough, right? Mm -hmm. So they can misinterpret. There's a lot of misinterpretation where yes. someone will say something, they will take it the wrong way. And then it's like the end of the world. And, yep. and so I've, I, I've done that, you know, Papa bear, like, who do I got to get, you know, like, yeah. right. And then, but what I've learned, what I've learned is that, you know, if, if there's always more to the story than what we yeah. are hearing at home. And it's always best to kind of, you know, um, not go in half cocked and, and just sort of, like you said, take a breath, take that minute and then talk about it. And if something needs to yeah. be addressed, then address it, you know, in a way that doesn't make it worse, you know, down the road, but 
Yeah, totally. And the other thing is for my, my kids, typical friends with the parents, that is something I talk about her autism all the time. Mm -hmm. I explain kind of where she's coming from because that way, and like what my intentions are, because that way, when those situations arise, I can say things like, Hey, I'm just fact checking here. (laughs) The story I heard could have been totally off. So this isn't like an attack. I'm just trying to figure out what happened. If you can do some sleuthing for me on your side, that would be super helpful. So if you build communication lines that are really open Mm -hmm. and where people understand where you're coming from as a parent with these kids, I feel like that makes it a lot easier when those kind of like spiky moments come up. Okay. Uh, How do you handle hygiene? Yeah. So a big thing with autistic kids is that sometimes they're not aware that their lack of hygiene is as big of an issue as it is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so like I'll say to my daughter, your feet really stink. And she's like, no, they don't. <laughs> like, Yes, they do. Um, and so I think in order to not shame, what you need to do is just reality set with your kids to say like, listen, there's certain things that sometimes we're not as aware of our own selves but that other people can tell for us. So those things tend to be like, if our breath is stinky, if our feet are stinky, if our armpits are stinky, if our hair is like a little oily or isn't fresh, sometimes for us, because we're just used to it, it doesn't bother us, but it can really make it so that it's hard for people literally to physically be in vicinity <laughs> of us. <laughs> yeah. So those are the boys, things that I so, want to, yeah. yeah, so that's <laughs> the thing I want to focus on for you so that people don't have to like hold their nose if they're around you, that yeah. you know, that that makes it easier to be around each other. And that's the same for everybody. And sometimes it can be kind of hard for yourself. So these are the, these are the things that we do as a family. I do them, you know, in my family, your dad does them, your sister does them, you do them. We all do them. We brush our teeth. We take a shower every other night. Um, generally speaking, that's what I recommend for the puberty kids every other night or every night. Um, we use deodorant once we start to have a little bit of stinkiness under our armpits and we wear socks when we go to school with our shoes. So, I mean, there's not that many things, right? Um, and then the hygiene things like shaving legs or, you know, pimples and that type of stuff that can come later. But I really try to focus on just those four main factors for kids in the very beginning, um, because then it's not so many things they have to do. What's a good foundation? And then you can kind of add the other things if and when they become a problem. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Don't fix it. (laughs) Uh, Okay. So, and we sort of touched on this in the beginning, but. You know, how this question was, how do I explain the bodily changes experienced during puberty to my autistic son whose cognitive ability is slightly younger than his physical age, if that makes sense? So there is a great book, actually, that the American Academy of Pediatrics put out uh, about a year and a half ago called Youology, Y-O-U. It's aimed at kids 8 to 11. So let's say you had a 10-year-old kid, especially boy, right? Who's just at the beginning, you might wait a tiny bit longer until they would fit into that eight year cognitive stage to have them read the book. The book is for kids, has lots of pictures. It does some activities in there. It's very kid friendly. You could read it ahead of time to make sure you feel comfortable with what the language is. It's very inclusive though. And it actually talks about different people's brain types um, and the the fact that we are all differently wired really when it comes down to it. So that's what I would use. I would use a guide. Don't feel like you have to be the one that does it all from memory or what you learned in like eighth grade science class yourself. 
Absolutely. Get a book where you can read it. You know what the facts are and then let your kid read it or you read it to your kid. Um, and don't be scared off if when you give that book to your child, they're like, nah, you know what I mean? Like just leave it in the room, let them peruse it. This book doesn't have any weird pictures or anything like that. It's just going to be like cartoon characters that they put in the book mm-hmm. to try to explain. So that's what I do. I would try to use an age appropriate or slightly younger, like the It's So Amazing book. There's one for kids who are five. So let's say you had a kid who was eight. You could maybe show them the one that's for the five-year-old. So just go back a couple of years is what I would say. Okay. And we sort of, we sort of touched on this one too, but you know, what are some of the differences between neurodivergent puberty and neurotypical puberty? And what are some of the unique challenges I should anticipate uh, for my 12-year-old son? And and like we touched on some of that stuff already. And one of the things that I, I wanted to bring up, I, I think, is because of some of that social awkwardness, there mm-hmm. there are a lot of times a lack of understanding when it comes to boundaries. And yeah. that that I have heard a lot of people have challenges with or or just sort of that lack of awareness of what's appropriate and what's not. And I think there's a couple of questions where we can get into that. But um, do you have any? Yeah. Can we make okay, them feel so better? Number one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so number one. Um, Limit social media as much as possible, including YouTube stuff for your kids that is not like Minecraft related or, you Mm -hmm. know, pretty young related. Um, What I find with my patients and also with my kiddos, it it just makes them grow up a little too soon so that it makes it so that they feel like that's what they're supposed to be doing or talking like or looking like or whatever, like sexualizes them a little bit sooner than normal. Um, because I see a lot of abuse in my practice, so I'll see kids who are abused or risk of abuse. Um, I have been very clear with my kids from the beginning and I, I recommend it, especially if your kid is neurodivergent, they have autism to say clearly to them, like no adult should be touching your body or looking at your private parts. These are what your private parts are point to them. If that ever happens, you will never be in trouble if you talk to, if you tell me, even if someone else says that you will. I'm your trusted adult. I love you. You will always be safe if you tell me. Because a lot of times abusers will tell kids, you know, like, oh, I'll kill your family if you tell them, or you'll be in big trouble, or your parents will be very mad at you. So it's important for our kids to hear it from us that if someone crosses a boundary and they tell us we're not disappointed in them, we're not mad at them, nothing bad is going to happen to them if that happens. Um, so always telling them that they are free to talk to us. And then, um, you know, for for the younger kids who are like below the junior high age, and honestly, even into middle school for these kids who are autistic and neurodivergent, like I don't want you kissing people. You don't need to be kissing people. You don't need to be, nobody needs to touch your body. Not even kids who are your age. You just leave that alone. Leave that to when you're older. Then you monitor your own kid. You see how things go. And if they're cognitively able to handle relationships when they're in high school, that's one thing. But at least then they'll be through that major body change part of puberty and able to communicate with you a lot of times, a lot more effectively. So I feel like it's that late elementary school and middle school where the boundaries need to be stricter with our kids who are neurodivergent than if they were not. All right. And I want to add this one too, because it somehow didn't make it to the list, but I know there were a few people asking, how how do you approach this when your child is non-speaking? Because they may or may not have a method of communication. I would hope that they have a method of communication if it's not speech, but how, how do you even begin to address that? 
Yeah, it's such a tough one. I think um, if your kid can understand you, so if they have receptive language, um, yeah, there's receptive language, which is you, a child or a person being able to understand language. There's expressive language, of course, which is that person being able to put communication out into the world. Right. So if your child does not have any expressive language, but they have receptive language, I would still be telling them, even if it's in pictures where you're drawing and putting like an X through the private part area. Um, I think also for those kids, very important, the adults that they're surrounded with, right? Um, my daughter will probably not go to summer camps. And I hate to say that as like, she, will, I mean, overnight summer camps. Um, I hate to put that on her, but I just worry about unsupervised time in cabins. If we've learned anything from the Boy Scouts and like all of those like yep. bigger organizations that took advantage of young kids who couldn't talk, who weren't neurodivergent, but who were, you know, five years old, six years old yeah, and even older kids. And for sure, kids who were uh, less cognitively advanced um, is that there are adults out there, unfortunately, who are kind of waiting to take to take advantage. So I think surrounding yourself with people who can be your eyes for you, um, limiting the group of people who are with your child without you having supervision over them. And then if they have receptive language, trying to with drawings or with words very simply set very strict boundaries, um, around who is supposed to touch them, who's supposed to work with them. Okay. Uh, the next that's a tough one, that's the it, toughest one, right? Like yeah. that's the like elephant in the room. Like what about these kids who can't communicate at all? What if these kids who like, you're not sure if they have receptive language, I don't want people to be in a bubble without any other friends and family around them. Yeah. But, um, I think we've just learned over time. And I think parents know this in their heart that those kids are the ones who are probably the most vulnerable and at risk of abuse. And so, um, I think it's about the circle that has access to your child when you are not around being small and being very intentional. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I was always, it was always that way with us. I've never, I've never used respite care in 23 years. Mm -hmm uh, never once. Um, I've had like my family and stuff like that, but that's, that's it. Uh, because yeah. I didn't trust that they would be safe and and it's nothing necessarily against anybody. It's, no. it's just, I was a medic. I've been around a lot of things, you know, during my career and I, I've, I, I understand the risk and, you know, not being able to clearly communicate or express themselves. Like I just, it made me really uncomfortable. And so I just refused to, to utilize that outside of family really. Uh, yeah. and that, and that's, that's what a lot of parents do because you got to keep that circle small sometimes and, and make sure that you know who these people are and that you limit the amount of time that you are, are leaving kids who are vulnerable alone with, with anyone. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's true. And, um, and I want to like put in a plug for a uh, true self-care here, too, because I don't think that means that you never take a break. Um, I, I don't gonna... think that means you have to micromanage every single thing. And yet it's like a catch 22. Well, yeah. how are you supposed to do that? If you don't have family, how are you supposed to do that? If you don't have trusted friends that yep. can come over, um, I do think if you don't have respite care workers using people who are your close friends, um, who are close adults, I think, um, that makes a lot of sense. 
And then in my book, which I know we're going to talk about a little bit, I talk a lot about the idea of like, what is true self-care when you're living in this sea of chaos? Yeah. <laughs> um, this morning we were talking about Rob, my daughter was getting ready for Halloween and we were having like a full on meltdown in my head. I'm like, oh my gosh, what did I do to deserve this? What did I do? <laughs> like in some former life, I must have been like a real jerk, you know, to, yeah. <laughs> to deserve this. Um. But, you know, in that moment, my version of self-care was actually, as she was screaming at me, to leave the room, not slam it, shut the door, be like, I will yep. be back, go downstairs, pour myself my cup of coffee, put the creamer in, drink half the cup with my eyes closed, <laughs> and then come back and, like, get back in it, right? Sometimes self-care is things like just taking that break to say, like, no, uh-uh, no, I have to, like, take care of myself right now because I'm, I'm, it's going to hurt you emotionally and hurt me more emotionally. Sometimes self-care means um, giving yourself compassion when you do act out, when mm -hmm. you do yell at your kid. Sometimes self-care means instead of, like, keeping myself overly busy with trying to kind of like um, numb all the feelings that I have about this life that I have and this situation I'm in as a parent, it means stopping and letting yourself be in your feelings with someone who can help you walk through it. So my therapist, sometimes I'll go to her in these sessions and she'll, I'll be like, okay, so what's like the solution? I have this problem. I need a solution. She's like, oh, no, no, no. Today, we're just going to like sit here in your feelings. I'm like, oh no, I don't want to do that. But I know that that's really good self-care to let myself be sad, to let myself be disappointed, to um, let myself wish for something different sometimes as a parent. To, I, the other night I was thinking about um, my kids as they grow up and my oldest daughter and how I'm worried, like, will she be able to hold down a job? How will she live in an in a apartment or house without me? Like, will she ever have a partner? Like, I can't even imagine that for her. And I got really sad and it's because I was like letting myself honestly take care of myself by going there for mm -hmm. a second. And so just a plug for, even if you don't have this wide circle of family around yourself and, and it feels like really discouraging to not maybe have the rest of people, you still deserve to attend to your own feelings and what your needs are as a parent. Of yeah. That's a really, kid. that's a really good point. And I, I was going to clarify that because I hear from people all the time, like, well, it's so easy to say that, but I have no help. So I totally get right. that. Totally get it. And I'm a huge proponent of self-care. I talk about it all the time. And it's, it's whatever works for you. And it could be yeah. as simple as closing your eyes and taking a deep breath, <laughs> like, mm -hmm. or, or, uh, you know, all, all the stuff that you were talking about. So I, I think that's a great, great way to kind of break up this list of questions here. Um, and something that's really good to remember. Okay. So now there's the next couple of questions are about, um, menstruation. <clears throat> okay. So <laughs> I get so, <laughs> I get so, it's so it's weird. All good. It's worry. all red, right? This like it's just all day for me. Wow. Go for it. <laughs> all right. How can I prepare to support my nonverbal nine-year-old daughter for her menstrual cycle and manage it on a monthly basis? That's a really good question because she's not like in the, like in it now, but like, how does she prepare herself as a parent? And then how does she prepare her daughter? I guess if that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. So a couple things. One, I would just be checking in with your daughter's pediatrician about when they think your daughter is going to have her period. So that way you know what's coming, right? And mm -hmm. as pediatricians, we're actually really good. There's these things called Tanner stages that we can use to say like, how far into puberty are you? And then how likely is it that you're about to start your period? Okay. Uh, space off growth and then also how the kid looks. So that's going to help you so that you're not in this constant state of like, could it be today? Could it be tomorrow? 
once you start seeing that your child is getting closer to the tanner stage or to the puberty stage where they're about to have your period their period make sure that the nurse at their school or the teachers or the people in their childcare place know that that's about to happen they're the ones actually you need to prepare mm-hmm. right and make sure that they have supplies I think the period underwear is a great option for your child because then it's just as simple as like putting on undies. Very, very easy. Um, Pads, like thin pads are the other thing that you could potentially offer. Um, And then you could also have a discussion with your pediatrician and with a gynecologist. Your pediatrician can refer you to a gynecologist before your kiddo ever has their period about what are your options. And this is very personal choice. So I'm not recommending that every single person do this. But there are options for nonverbal kids to be on hormonal pills. So they're birth control pills. Mm-hmm. They're they're used for birth control, but they're used for plenty of other things in medicine. Managing um, cycles to make and it balancing hormones. Yeah, yeah, to make it so that the cycles are regulated, so that they're not long or they're not painful, or even in some cases to make it so that your child doesn't experience a period at all. If you feel like that would just be untenable and ruin your world, so be open to that, to just the conversation around what's the right thing for my kid. All right. You know, the other thing too, and I'm, I'm, I'm a boy dad, right? So I don't have experience, uh, in girls. Uh, but I would think there's sensory issues too, that would, you know, when you're, when you're talking about using tampons or pads or something that could be, um, problematic or, you know, so so I think having that, having that option for like the underwear, I think would be, a positive thing. And maybe parents don't know about yeah. that. Yeah, exactly. And I there's been, you gotta do your research because there's been a little bit of stuff about like the chemicals that are in the underwear. And so there's different brands and different chemicals they use for the absorption. So make sure you feel really comfortable with what you're putting on your child. And also for me, some of those things are like cost benefit. So <laughs> if it's the trauma of having to use a pad and it's sticky, because sometimes a pad, it can like fold over on itself and then it could stick to hair or it could stick to skin. Mm-hmm. That's going to be really uncomfortable for a nonverbal autistic kid or a verbal autistic kid. Yeah. Um, it's hard enough to learn how to use a tampon as a typical person. So I have kids, teenagers who are neurotypical, who go to the gynecologist to learn how to put a tampon in. Or we show them. How to oh, you can, uh, you can, that's you so, can do so that. stupid. You can do that. Like, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Here's the other thing. Let me get real, real with you, Rob. Yeah. Okay. So my daughter was like, I don't understand. They talked about tampons in school and I don't know what this is. If you feel comfortable, which I did because I'm a pediatrician, I was like, okay, this is what it is. So I just laid down and like put it in and showed her, this is how you put it in because I wanted her to demystify it. I wanted it to be like, this is what it is. It's not that big a deal. She's like, oh, okay. I think I'm going to use pads. I was like, okay, cool. (laughs) You know what I mean? So if that's something that you would feel comfortable with, sometimes just showing our kids, this is what a pad looks like here. I'm putting it in my underwear. This is what a tampon looks like here. I'm putting it in myself where I'm showing you what it looks like when it's not there. Mm -hmm. You know, that can help to make it so it's less scary for you and your kid in the end. It was like a five second endeavor, you know, and then we were done. Yeah. Well, and if you're a dad, like a single dad, and you're trying to navigate this on your own, just, you said you could just go to the gynecologist and they can help you to navigate that because I, I cannot imagine trying to navigate that as a dad without that, that help, (laughs) you know? Yeah, no, no, no. So your your, there are pediatric gynecologists. So there are gynecologists that specialize in young kids. 
um, young girls so they can help. And then your pediatrician is also very well equipped to help. So, and a lot of times what we'll do is have chaperones in the room with us. Um, I was going to so ask you about you, that. Yeah. You, your child, a chaperone in my office, we offer a chaperone actually now, even for kids who are like five years and up, everybody gets offered a chaperone. So um, you can also request for your nonverbal kid. I would request that you stay in the room mm -hmm. um, with the provider when they're doing the exam. There's no reason for you to be out of the room if your kid is nonverbal. So those are other ways that you can kind of work with your pediatrician. And, you know, I mean, in, in as far as like choosing a male doctor versus a female doctor, um, is it just like preference, like what you're comfortable with? Or is it, I mean, what your kids are comfortable with too? Yeah, it's totally preference. You know, pediatricians are professional. It used to be almost all men who were pediatricians. So having women in the field is a newer thing as of, I don't know, 30 years ago, 40 years mm -hmm. ago. Um, I'm sure there were some before that, but I mean, it's now become a <laughs> mostly female-dominated female field. Um, but most people in our practice, when boys turn about 11, they go over to the boy doctors in our office. And when the girls turn about nine, they come on over to me. So we do not feel sensitive about that. It doesn't matter. We totally understand. So please don't hesitate. If you're feeling like you're going to hurt somebody's feelings, you're not. Just say it's because we want to have somebody that they'll feel more comfortable with. All right. Uh, what steps can be taken to manage heightened emotions, anxiety, mood swings, uh, and mood swings in autistic children, especially girls during puberty? Yeah. So uh, a lot of this is about routine as they get into these puberty ages for boys and girls, but girls especially. So the kids in general need to know what to expect. They do well when they know what to expect. Autistic kids especially do well when they know yeah. what to expect. So having the same like before school routine, having the same after school routine, actually having a few little chores that maybe they're responsible for if they're mm -hmm. a verbal kid or you feel like they can handle that. Having that be part of like, we come home, Here's the checklist. Maybe it's a picture um, and they do little check marks on it of what they're supposed to complete before they do screen time or, you know, whatever. Having the same bedtime. And then one of my hugest things is getting kids active as much as possible. This is not a weight thing. This is a like move your body and get all those good endorphins going yep. thing. So nonverbal kid, verbal kid trying to get out to the park. Um, when the rain season comes in Portland, we have dance parties. Um, my kids are big into Taylor Swift right now. So we throw on the Taylor Swift as loud as possible and like jump around the room, you know? <laughs> oh, hey, you got your bracelets. <laughs> yeah, I made them with my so, girlfriend and her daughter. Nice. So, yeah, yeah. So yeah, so, you know, um, just trying to move as much as possible and then as much sunlight as possible when it's not a dark, rainy day um, will help a ton. And then setting yourself up if your kid is verbal as someone they can talk to. Um, so saying, you know, I'm here if you have questions and talking about your own feelings with your kids. So you don't have to go deep down the rabbit hole of like, I had a mental breakdown the other day, but you can say, you know, <laughs> it's just Tuesday guys. Can, it's just Tuesday, <laughs> you know, but you can say like, Oh, I feel really sad today. I mean, I said That's that the funny. other day to my daughter, like I feel really sad today and I'm not sure actually exactly why. And so I want to put, I'm going to try to find a song that I can listen to that will help me feel a little bit better. And, you know, I, I've made the mistake and I just did a whole episode on this with my youngest because I started, he and I started doing episodes together and he was very upset when he found out that I had been struggling with burnout and he didn't know. 
Yeah. And I thought that I was protecting him by not letting him know how much I was struggling, but he knew something was wrong anyways. And I just kept telling him everything was fine. So that, that made him mad. But what he told me was like, when I didn't know what was going on, it was worse than if you had just told me this is what's going on. And then I thought about it and I'm like, well, geez, you know, like I could have, I could have modeled the behavior. I could have been like, look, I'm struggling right now. I'm doing too much. I'm burning out, but this is what I'm going to do. And I'm going to make changes here. And I'm going to you know, reprioritize what I'm doing because this is what happens when we don't take care of ourselves and, and let them see that, okay, yes, you're right. Something's going on, but it's going to be okay. Because when things like this happen, we just adapt and we make the changes we need in order to, to move forward. And I think a lot of times we do things to try and protect our kids with the best of intentions, but we can use them as teaching moments to, to help our kids to learn, to navigate things that, uh, might be harder for them to try and figure out on their own. So I, I, I like that you were saying that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, puberty is confusing for everyone. Like it was confusing for me. You don't know what you're feeling. And sometimes you don't have a solution. And so I think, especially for autistic kids, that's very uncomfortable for it not to be like, here's the answer. And, um, and so sometimes when we can model, like you're saying, just that, like, I'm in a problem. I don't know what the answer is yet but I'm feeling this way, but I know there will be a solution eventually. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about what the solution is going to be. I haven't found it yet, but don't worry. In the end, it will be okay. Mm-hmm. But I'm I'm just here in this right now. And so just give me a day. I'll figure it out. You know what I mean? That's so reassuring that when they're feeling that same way, they'll be able to figure it out eventually. Too. Well, and when you're talking about like with puberty and you're going through those emotions because you have the hormones, all that stuff going on you know, modeling, like how, how do you feel, how do you manage yourself when you feel out of control? And I think a lot of times kids that are going through that, they, they just, they feel like they're like, they can't explain how they're feeling. Like they, they just are all over the place and having something that helps to regulate that. Like you talked about physical activity, being outside, it kind of burns through that, that energy a little bit and gives them like a constructive outlet versus sort of internalizing it. And then just like, screaming at everybody <laughs> in the, in the yeah, house, you know, totally. <laughs> yeah. So that was, that was, that was good. I appreciate that. Um, how do you address physical aggression, especially during PMS week? And they have that in quotes, PMS week in my 15 year old daughter. Yeah. So PMS week, of course, would be like premenstrual syndrome before your kid has their period that those few days or that week before. Um, biggest thing is giving them something sensory wise that they can do that gets that aggression out. You know, you need a place for that aggression to go. So if you don't want it to come out in words and in uh, physical actions, give them something to do. Have it be something that's like a deep stim activity. So it's like punching a punching bag. I was just going to say like, yeah, punching a punching bag, um, having a race where you're running as fast as you can. Um, a wrestling match um, is a great way to get that out. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that sometimes you'll see too, I know you didn't ask about this, but I think we have to talk about it, is that kids in puberty tend to explore themselves. That's the next question, they tend actually. To, okay, all right, cool. So they tend to touch themselves. They tend to explore themselves. That is a normal human thing especially when kids are sensory seeking. You probably noticed when they were little, they used to touch their ears or maybe they sucked on their fingers or they touched their belly button like my kid did. Um, When kids are like four or five, sometimes they'll like hump the desk, you know, like 
those are all normal things. And that happens even more when all the emotions and all the hormones come into play. Totally fine to do. The biggest thing you need to do is like wipe that shock face (laughs) off of you and have it be that there's some boundaries around it. That happens in your room. That's a private thing. And so you just do that when you're in private by yourself. Totally fine. Totally fine to do, right? Which is different than the way that my mama raised me, right? Like (laughs) so different. I get it. And also check your ego, you know, at the door. This is like, we're not in 1981. It's okay for kids to do that. It just needs to, of course, not be in public. It needs to be in a private space. Um, and they need to not hurt themselves. So for a kid who is nonverbal, especially who might kind of go at it a little too hard if they're masturbating, you need to help them to understand, like, if they come to you and say, like, oh, this part's sore, to say, like, well, it's probably that we need to take it easy a little bit. That's a, that's just a health physical conversation to have. Okay. That is not an easy conversation to have, I think, for a lot of people. But you do it so well. Like, you just, like... If you guys, those of you who are watching the video, you'll see how like I'm struggling with some of this stuff (laughs) and you just, you're so matter of fact and it makes it so easy to kind of navigate some of this stuff. And I think that's what, that's what parents, they need, uh, that guidance. Yeah. Well, remember I talk about this stuff all day long. So if you never talked about it, what you might need to do, I know this sounds creepy, but is to practice not in a mirror. That's going to freak you out but just to practice like to a wall Mm -hmm. saying these things to your kid, you know, you see your kid, they're masturbating. It's like not in a place where you feel comfortable. You feel like it's too much. And then you need to like go into your bedroom and be like, so Johnny, here's like practice it like five times and then go in and say it to your kid. Like I've had way more practice than other people have, which is why I feel confident in saying it. So if you need to practice a couple of times, that's no big thing. You would practice anything that's important to you. So that's don't true. Feel afraid of that. That's true. All right. So, uh, this, this next, the, the following questions are related to, um, handling what they consider to be sort of inappropriate behavior and, uh, sexually, um, like self-exploratory kind of things like we were talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, how can I establish boundaries regarding self-exploration while ensuring a safe and uh, respectful environment for my autistic child. So kind of touched on that a little bit, I think already. Yeah. The other thing I think is educating yourself if you aren't aware and Mm -hmm. also educating your child about why they are doing that. Um, I think a lot of kids feel shame about that if it's something that they don't know is normal. So they think there's something wrong with them. The fact that it feels good to touch themselves in a certain way. Right. Um, and so we need to be the ones as parents to say like, Hey, this is a normal thing. If this happens, that's okay. At a certain age. Um, I don't recommend saying that to your five-year-old because <laughs> then they're going to take that and run and be like, ah, poo-poo, pee-pee, yeah. masturbation. You know what I mean? But, um, but the older kids, the like 10 year olds, that's a perfectly normal conversation to have to say like, Hey, this might be that it kind of feels good. You know how it came up for my daughter the other day. She's riding her bike and she goes, sometimes she goes, sometimes I'm reading a book and there's a part where the, where the boy's kissing the girl and it feels tingly in my vagina. And I'm wondering if that's normal. And I go, yeah, it is. That's it. Yeah, it is. Then she goes, and sometimes I feel that way when I'm riding my bike too. And I was like, yeah, that's normal. That happens because it's just rubbing on something. So it makes it kind of feel good. That's normal. And then that opens the conversation to like, here's why that feels good. Here's the hormones that are happening. 
here's how sometimes you might feel like doing that. This needs to happen in a private space. Mm -hmm. So I would, that's why you got to talk about stuff as early as possible. And it's not too late if you haven't talked to your kids at all now, so that they'll ask that question so that you don't have to bring up. So let's talk about you exploring yourself. You know what yeah, I mean? You can, you can just start it from where they ask. And and sort of build build on it as you go forward. So you can you build that foundation, then you can just sort of address the things as they come up. So it's easier exactly. for you as a parent and also 100%. less that your child has to take in at one time. Exactly. So it seems like it yes. would be a better thing. Um, okay. How can I address the lack of modesty in my 15 year old son without shaming him while emphasizing the importance of privacy and what they call appropriate behavior? And I guess that's yeah, sort of I like, know. put that in quotes. This is a really hard one because I think like the, the clothes that kids are wearing these days are like, whoa, dude, like that's a corset. You know what I mean? Like that's a piece of lingerie. That's like really crop topped. Um, I think there are appropriate things that you do in different situations. So that's the way I talk about it with my kids. If you want, like at school, we don't wear crop tops. That's just in my family. You can do what you want in your family. In my family, like that's distracting. It's distracting mm -hmm. for other kids. It might make it so that then when you go upside down on the, on the, uh, you know, whatever bars monkey that bars you might accidentally, yeah, monkey bars, your shirt might accidentally come up and you show too much. So like, we're not going to do that. That's not an appropriate place. If you want to sit on our couch and wear a crop top, I don't care. You know what I mean? Like go for it. But that's not something that's appropriate for that space. Those norms change over time, right? Mm -hmm. Like a hundred years ago, you would have never shown your shoulders and that was right. scandalous, right? Um, now, if my kid has like a tiny crop top, like it's like a little tiny bit of skin showing, I don't really care. But I care if it's like right below the bra line. So you and your family have to decide what's okay. But I think the way to not shame is to talk about there are different things that are appropriate in different settings. And so a school setting is different than from your couch is different from the weekend is different from a Halloween costume that you're wearing. Um, and ask yourself, I think it also comes back to as a parent, like, why, what is the thing that you're worried about? If you're worried about, especially for your nonverbal autistic kid, that that will make them more of a target. That's a perfectly valid reason for you to have them a little bit more covered up. Uh, and so the last question in this, and then there's just one more after that, um, how, when, when it comes to kids coming of that age, right. And you, you talk to them about sex, um, how do you handle that with kids who are cognitively impaired? You know, is it, is it, is it, and this is such a sensitive topic for so many people because you want kids to grow up and be able to experience things that everybody else gets to do. Right. But it, it needs to be, there's safety things and there might be, you know, issues where they don't understand the consequences of, of things. Maybe how do you, yeah. how do you navigate that with, with kids? Like you don't want to, you know, without making it like a negative thing, if that makes sense. Yeah. I also think this is an area where your pediatrician can help. I think that you have, it's about your individual child. Mm -hmm. Where are they? There are some kids that I see that will never have, that will never have sex. And like, that is a huge disappointment, you know, as a parent that they won't experience those same things, but that, um, they wouldn't be able to use birth control effectively, or they wouldn't be able to protect themselves from sexually transmitted infections, that it could be a serious issue for them if they did. And so, um, 
I think that you and your pediatrician, and again, potentially a gynecologist, um, if you have a, a female child, can really help you to navigate where that line needs to be. One thing I always remind myself and I tell parents is let's not get ahead of ourselves. We're, you know, you have a five-year-old kid, you're not at age 25 yet. Like you're not at age 16 yet. So you got to take it, I think, step-by-step to see what they're able to handle, what your, what the conversations are. I think that kids do tend to kind of declare themselves over time. So you're going to know if there's like a smaller incident that happens and you're like, oh no, that did not go well. This is not good. Okay. Well, that means like the boundary probably needs to be even stronger. So, um, I would just encourage parents not to get five steps ahead of them themselves. I think if you have a nonverbal autistic kid, um, then you're likely going to be having a conversation with your providers about mostly keeping your kids safe from Mm -hmm. other people, less about what's going to be their independent relationship with sex with another person. Um, That's usually more of the conversation. Okay. And, uh, the last question is how do you handle dating? Yeah. Um, so I think again, it's kind of comes back to the YouTube thing. Like kids are going and dating and talking about dating and boyfriends. And, Mm -hmm. you know, again, I love Taylor Swift, but like she talks about her boyfriends all the time, which is fine. I think that's just like popular music in general, but kids have a lot more exposure to kind of that language over time, which sets their expectations that that's what they should be doing. Um, the the longer we can wait to have kids need to be in a relationship with somebody else, um, yeah. the better. I want my kids to develop a really strong sense of themselves. Who are they? What is their self-worth? What is their identity? And then to be connected with other people. Um, totally fine. I want them to have relationships with people of the opposite gender so that that way they can be friends with those people and learn that boys can often be different than girls in terms of the way that they're wired. Um, so I, I definitely don't want people to be limiting those opportunities, but in terms of it being something that's physical, especially when you have a neurodivergent kid, Mm -hmm. I think the big thing that you want to teach your kid is just who they are who their body is, what their own limits are in their body, what makes them feel good, as opposed to them having to address the needs of a partner earlier than they're ready to. That's probably true for all of us. My goodness. Well, (laughs) yeah. I mean, a lot of this stuff applies kind of across the board. You just have to sort Mm -hmm. of reframe it to um, be more applicable to the neurodivergent community. So it's, it's, you know, a lot of these questions, there aren't definitive answers to it's, it's based on what you know, where your child is, what they're doing and what they're developmentally, you know, capable of where, where they are emotionally developmentally, like all, all of that stuff. And, 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 you know, talk to your pediatrician, talk to therapists, right. And get some ideas about like how to navigate through some of these things that are uncomfortable or, or you don't want to, like, you, you don't want to screw up. It's a parent. Like we don't want to screw, we don't want to screw our kids up. Right. Yep. And, and yeah, so we overthink. Yeah, I think getting help from a therapist or your pediatrician is great because they're going to know your individual child. I don't have a date, like a time where my kids can date. I don't know yet. You know what I mean? Because I need to see who they are. Where they are. I need to see why they would want to be doing that. I want to see like how they form relationships over time. So I think that's the other thing. Like, don't put yourself in a box where you're like, this is my role. You don't know. Like wait until your kid is at that point, but be conscious consistently looking at who your kid is and getting feedback from professionals who can guide you. I think that's a great, that's a great piece of advice. 
uh, I really appreciate that. Um, I wanted to touch on your book a little bit too, because that is, uh, we, well, I've talked, we've talked about that before, but can you tell us a little bit about, uh, your book and, and when it's available and, and what you're, what you're doing with everything that you're doing? Yeah. So I have a new book that's coming out in January, January 23rd. Mm -hmm. It's called doing it all stop over functioning and become the mom and person you're meant to be. Um, it's for all of us, uh, former <laughs> do it allers It's for people who really feel like a lot of their value comes from being productive, from constantly being in motion. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and who feel like as we've had that training, as we've had kind of that messaging from the world that that makes us valuable, that it's ended up pulling us in way too many directions, making us stretched way too thin as we're trying to care for the needs of other people constantly, that we lose who we are, that we don't attend to our needs. And that in the end, that actually sabotages us and the people that we love and the work that we want to do and how we show up in life. So the book is actually a framework. It's a workbook style where you go through, there's lots of personal stories in there, but I show people exactly how to put themselves, parents, how to put themselves back in the center of their own life. And I do not mean by taking a five-star vacation for half a year to a private island. I mean, in the small little things, figuring out what do you need? What are the things that irritate you? What are the things you want to prioritize? And then how do we build strategies to be able to handle all the rest of the things in life that have to get done, but that really shouldn't fit behind us? All right. And that is, if you want to share links, uh, I'll put them in all the notes yeah. afterwards and you know, people can, is it up for pre-order now? Yeah. So it's available for pre-order now. And actually if you pre-order it before the end of this month, um, so the end of November, then you're eligible to win free childcare. We're doing a $15,000 free childcare giveaway. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. So, and the $15,000 is like for whatever kind of childcare you want it to be. So if you wanted it to be for like date nights or you wanted it to be for, you know, paying for respite care or mm -hmm. paying a family member to come over and watch your kiddos so you can go somewhere, you know, any of that, um, it counts toward that. So, but yeah, we really wanted to put our money where our mouth is because like you said, sometimes it can be really difficult to find good help or find people that you can trust or to be able to have the resources to actually take care of yourself. Well, I, I really appreciate uh, you taking the time to do this. I... I survived it. I wasn't sure that I was going to. I got a little squeamish, a little bit, but we did really well. I think this is going to help a lot of parents out. Like I kind of joke about it because whatever, but it is a tough thing to talk about, you know? Um, yeah. How can parents find you and, and connect? Yep. So you can find me at modernmommydoc.com. I'm on Instagram at modernmommydoc. That's my website. And there's a little banner at the very top of the website where you can just click if you want to order the book or learn more about the book, um, it's modernmommydoc.com slash doing it all, but just go to modern mommy doc. That's the easiest way to find me. And I'm always happy to help people by answering questions. Um, I put a lot of posts up that are reminders or actual strategies for helping to put yourself back in the center of your own. And, and I, and I will say that they're very practical. The, the stuff yes. that you suggest, because so many times I just did a reel about this the other day when they talk about self-care People tell you like, you have to do this or you have to do this. It, it doesn't help people if it's not practical and if it's not possible. No. And, and the stuff no. that you share is very like everyday kind of things that are accessible to most people and, and realistically applicable to your life. You know, so that yeah, I wanted to point absolutely. that out because you do a really good job of that. 
Thank you. I appreciate that. No, I mean, the big thing for me is I live here in the real world. <laughs> I have real world problems. I don't get to choose my own adventure every single day and like go off by myself. I have like kids yell at me in the morning about Halloween costumes. So because of that, what I recommend to people is stuff that I know can work kind of whatever is happening in your life. And mm-hmm. that's especially applicable to the neurodivergent parent population. Yeah. Well, thank you for everything that you do. And uh, I'll have all your information in the description for the video and in the show notes for the uh, the podcast and all that stuff. I really appreciate it. I think this is going to help a lot of people. Anything I can do to help support what you're doing, just let me know. I'm happy to happy to do that. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Before I let you go, I just want to say thank you for taking the time to tune in today. It means a lot to me. I really appreciate it. And, you know, I put a lot of time and energy into each one of these episodes because I want there to be a resource for you that wasn't available for me when I was going through this with my kids. And, you know, I I want there to be a positive impact on your lives. I want you to be able to learn something and enjoy what you're hearing. So uh, thank you again. I really appreciate it. For more information, you can visit theautismdad.com. You can subscribe on any one of your favorite podcast listening apps. And uh, I will talk to you next week. Thank you.